1: Over that course of that day, that 24 hours, a headache arrived and it was the worst headache I'd ever had, ever. And it was constant. It wouldn't, it didn't go. It was just all along my forehead. It was just, it was the most painful constant. It didn't, it, it was just like a sharp pain there the whole time. The whole experience of the hospital is just an emotional experience. The psychological sort of aspect of it was one of the, the hardest things to deal with because you start analysing a lot of stuff, life, life choices, what you do, and then you're surrounded by people who, who are helping you. I think it's the first time you're faced with your own mortality. I think that's 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 the overriding feeling. You kind of go through life and and you don't really think about it, do you? But then something happens and you think, "Oi, that could have played out differently."
2: Hello, I'm Mark Goodyear. Welcome to Stroke Stories. In the UK, there are more than 100,000 strokes every year, about one every five minutes. Around the world, there could be as many as 15 million. It's very often a sudden illness, and it can be devastating. And while the health services are amazing with diagnosis and treatment, after a stroke, patients often find there aren't enough resources to help them on the journey to recovery. So we started Stroke Stories, the podcast, to seek out, and to hear from, stroke survivors. Let's meet David Jordan, a 39-year-old social media manager from Stoke. His stroke came completely out of the blue two years ago.
1: Really, I loved my job before the stroke, and um, I was fairly active, not as active as I was when I was younger. but I was just going about my normal life, you know, everyday life, whatever. I was just getting, I woke up, um, this was sort of July, two years ago, wasn't it? I had a shower like I did before work, any normal day. Um, and I kind of found myself um, sort of stumble in the shower. And I sort of grabbed the wall because uh, I'd lost my balance. I, d- I didn't massively think anything of it, really. It was just more like... you there was a hot shower, maybe I was just a little bit disorientated, but I didn't think too much of it, if I'm being completely honest. I stepped out of the shower uh, and I, I didn't feel right. I felt very sort of lightheaded, a bit queasy. I just felt a little bit strange, kind of hungover. Not, I think it's the strangest way to say it. It's like, you're a bit spaced out, you're a bit shaky, whatever. We were living in a two up, two down at the time. So the bathroom was downstairs. Um, and I sort of walked from the downstairs into the living room. And I sat down on the sofa, and, and it was just like sweat was just pouring out of me. I was a bit lightheaded, and it was I could lit, I could you could almost see sort of water leaving your body, sweat leaving your body, and I felt obviously very hot, lightheaded. And I said to my wife, "Yeah, I feel a bit strange, but I'm sure I'll be fine. Um, if I recall, I went up the stairs and just continued to get ready for work, as I would do normally. Uh, I still felt a little bit groggy, a bit lightheaded and I think my wife drove me to work normally I would always drive to work it would I would I would always do that so I obviously was feeling not myself because um I was you know I said my wife do you mind driving me into work Uh, and as I got to work I by the time I got to my area my desk a few flights of stairs and all that sort of stuff I, I was I'm not somebody who would phone sick for the slightest thing, which is probably why I even went to work in the first place that day. But I managed to get I managed to walk from my desk to my, my manager's, my boss's office. And that's not very far. But I remember when I got there, it was a real struggle to get that far. And I just sort of went into the office to said, Look, I was really sorry, I'm not I'm not well, I am gonna need to go home today. And a colleague of mine drove me home and then when I got home I just went straight to bed. I didn't know what had happened, or you know, I didn't I didn't feel anything other than just a bit groggy. And then over that course of that day, that 24 hours, a headache arrived and it was the worst headache I'd ever had ever. And it was constant. It wouldn't, it didn't go. It was just the, all along my forehead. It was just, it was the most painful constant. It didn't, it, it was just like a sharp pain there the whole time. Um, and I, but I'd had headaches previously and I do have bad headaches every now and then. So I kind of thought, well, okay, I'll sleep it off. I've had like a headache before. Maybe it's just part and parcel of me feeling a little bit under the weather. But I got home from work on a Thursday morning. um, And then I was in bed pretty much for 24 hours, really. And then it got to, it got, so that was from like 9 o'clock in the morning. It got to about 3 in the morning. So it's almost sort of like 20 hours or so now, 19, 20 hours. And I said to my wife, I I still feel really, really bad. Like, you know, this headache just hasn't stopped. Um, and she, she, at this point, she thought, okay, let's just call a paramedic. Uh, and, uh, and an ambulance arrived about three, four in the morning, and they checked me over and, and pretty much said to my wife, well, if you go and get some migra-relief, would it be like some strong headache tablets when the pharmacy opens at nine o'clock? Ask him to take them. If it doesn't improve throughout the day, then obviously call, call an ambulance. So that's what we did. Uh, she went and got me some headache tablets, some stronger headache tablets for nine o'clock. Uh, it was still bad. I think, you know, I think I was feeling sick by then. Um, and, and then my mum had just been on holiday she had been out to Greece or something and my wife is at this point it's, it's now going on into sort of the early afternoon sort of midday one o'clock still nothing better and I myself I was just in bed for the whole of this time really just trying to manage the the, the, the real pain of the headache uh, my wife ran my mum up and my mum lives three hours away from us uh, she just drove straight up so obviously my wife was concerned at this point and uh, my mum arrived at our house I uh, sort of took one look at me and said look let's just ring an ambulance again and then the, the, an ambulance came about is around about the time that my wife was picking the kids up so I remember like we tried to get myself I tried to get into the ambulance before the kids would come home if that makes sense to so just kind of take away the stress of that for, 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 the, for the children and I remember I, I was able to walk so I and I kind of got out of bed because the ambulance they didn't had to check me over in the bedroom. And I said, no, I think I'm 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 fine. I, I should be able to walk down the stairs. But I'd had my eyes closed for quite a period of time just to kind of manage the pain. Um, but I managed to walk down the stairs and I walked into the back of the ambulance. But literally the second I then got onto the the bed or the trolley, whatever it is in the, in the back of the ambulance, I remember I couldn't stop being sick and I had lost all my balance all of a sudden. They took me to the um, A and E and. And I was just continually being sick at this point, and, and I had lost all balance. Like There was nowhere I could have walked or anything at this point. I was The slightest movement sort of made you start feeling like you were falling through the air just for, forever, really, until that sensation passed. It was, it was very strange. But I, I went to A&E. They checked me out, had brain scans, head scans, and all this type of stuff. Um, and then a, sort of a few hours, after being an A and E, someone came through and then said um, you you've, you've suffered a stroke. I was conscious of it the whole time, even though like I say, this is almost coming up to sort of thirty six hours of really having my eyes closed and not being able to open them just because of the pain of, of the headache or whatever. And I'm thinking, oh, I'll What you know? What does what does that mean? How when's this gonna? When's this going to start getting any better? Or is it going to get a lot worse? You know, what's the end result here? When I look back, I can remember two or three occasions where I felt dizzy beforehand. Like the, in the maybe in the four weeks leading up to when I was taken into hospital, there was, there was some incidents. I remember being at work and just felt a bit lightheaded and stumbled a little bit. The specialist said the stroke that I had is... is um, Something that you'd expect from somebody who's had a car accident, so it's like an impact and it was uh, the back left artery it's been dissected which caused the blood to clot and then a clot's gone up into my brain and killed that part of the brain that's associated with balance so they thought it's an impact injury to my neck, and they seem to think that that the impact or whatever's caused it would have happened maybe twenty four hours prior to me being taken into hospital but I, but I, I had no incident like that, so and they did all the tests, and my blood pressure wasn't high, my cholesterol wasn't high, that my, you know, I don't have any, any history of it in the family or anything like that. So they don't they don't really know what caused it, really.
2: David found his stay in hospital particularly emotional, and he found that challenging to deal with.
1: The whole experience of the hospital is it's just an emotional experience. The psychological sort of aspect of it was one of the, the hardest things to deal with, because you start analysing a lot of stuff, life, life choices, what you do, and then you're surrounded by people who, who are helping you. Not just because it's their job, because they're doing it because they care. If <laughs> that sounds stupid. Um, yeah, so the, it was the emotional side of things which I've probably found
2: hardest to deal with, really. During that stay in hospital, David thought that he was waiting to hear the worst about his condition. But his family and friends were there to support him.
1: So I was taken to hospital on the Friday. Um, and obviously the first 24 hours first 40 hours very critical because they don't know how things are going to play out and they were fairly open and honest with me um whilst i had my eyes closed and i was i was a bit i was in a bit of a i was conscious but you're in a different kind of state of, of consciousness really um and obviously all your family are arriving and it feels like people are uh are waiting for the worst if that makes sense i all, all of my family were arriving and you're in the ward and, and you're kind of trying to get better and they don't know how it's going to play out so the first 24 hours 40 hours you're literally just taking it second by second i have three children i have my my eldest daughter would have been five um, my middle daughter would have been three and then my son's 10 weeks old so all of that type of stuff's going through your minds as well and i remember just thinking to my wife if you just leave me here in the hospital you look after the kids and I'll deal with what I can deal with here in the hospital. Fortunately my my closest friend he was in the country, he works for himself. He's able to come up and literally just stay with me in the hospital room for the whole time I was in hospital. And he arrived probably on a Saturday and then it enabled sort of my family to, to come away a little bit and, and look after my children, I guess. And and I was in the hospital ward with my closest friend and as I started to feel a bit better, probably 24, 40 hours later, we would just start to chat and laugh and just try and come away from the situation that we was in. The Sunday night, they were half expecting that they might have to operate. I remember the, the, the neurosurgeon came in on Monday morning and said, oh, you know, he was amazed by how much I'd sort of kicked on almost in 12 hours or overnight, really, from the Sunday into the Monday. And he and he said like I, I was half expecting to come in today to see you and make arrangements to do some sort of procedure, um, but but I've, I've, the recovery I've made overnight really uh, surprised him so much. that He was happy, and we're just going to let it continue. I was just able to start talking again by then, and just not stop feeling sorry for myself. I wasn't really feeling sorry for myself, but I had my company, a very close friend, and luckily we just sort of chatted through the night, <laughs> really. Um, as I was obviously getting better. And by the Monday, I was kind of... They thought that I was over the worst of it. And they were hoping that there would be no sort of long-term damage. By the Tuesday, I was... I think maybe the Monday after the evening, they got me out of bed and sat me up and all that sort of stuff. And you kind of... The physiotherapists come, I guess, on the Tuesday... late m- Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and try and get you up moving again. By Wednesday, I was sort of able to start... <laughs> taking some steps again really and then everything just sort of came up because I think the thing with mine is they said another part of my brain now does the functions that the part that is killed off you know she no longer does um, and I think about it Wednesday Thursday I was then able I, I was able to leave hospital on the Thursday and continue like my recovery at home. The following weeks and months I, you know obviously you're off work you're not able to drive everything's a lot slower well, all of a sudden everyone's just fussing over you and fussing over you and, and that's frustrating and you kind of lose, you know, you lose your freedom or whatever. You're not able just to go in a car or you, you kind of miss work. And then obviously the, then you start on all the drugs stuff comes, you know, all the uh, warfarin comes and I'm having injections in your stomach to kind of thin your blood and all those type of stuff. Yeah, you're just getting used to what you now have to do, I suppose, with the medication, which I took for the first six months. But other than that, you're just a bit, obviously you're just a bit, yeah, just a bit shaking, a bit slower. But I think at this point they they were happy that there would be no lasting damage. You know, emotionally, it's a very strange time. You, you kind of take stock of a lot of a lot of things. I think it's the first time you're faced with your own mortality. I think that's 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 the overriding feeling. You kind of go through life and and you don't really think about it, do you? But then something happens and you think, crikey, that could have played out differently through 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 me not doing anything differently myself it could have just played out differently and I've just my over my feeling at the end was I just felt like I, how fortunate I've been in a strange way my father's always worked uh, for the national Health service um not as a doctor or as a nurse or anything, but he's worked in and around the national house service. so I've always I've always understood the importance of it and I think the the main change after now is it's my feeling towards the National House Service, which is stronger, you know. It's how I perceive the National House Service and, you know, what an amazing job they do.
2: Although it was a difficult and emotional time for David and his family, his friends and loved ones rallied round, positive that recovery wasn't far away. Still to come on this episode of Stroke Stories. David reflects on how his charity efforts gave him something meaningful to focus on.
1: You know, you've got something in your mind to focus on, whether it's the run or, it's, or whether it's the football match, and the football match is mainly to say, OK, well, let's try and get up to a, a fairly decent standard of fitness just so you can make the most of it.
2: And he discusses how he faced the consequences of his stroke on his own terms.
1: There's a, there's a very real chance, high chance, in the next 24 hours, you'll start to notice that your left side um, will stop functioning as normal so when i was in the hospital bed i remember just thinking the whole time i was just moving my arms and my legs just to see and almost kind of tell myself like this isn't going to happen
0: hi this is craig robinson from ways to win and support for this podcast comes from invesco qqq the official etf of the ncaa the future isn't scary not realizing its potential however could be you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/host.
2: Let's hear how after the recovery from his stroke, David felt like he needed to give something back.
1: I donate to charities all the time and you know I'm not somebody who you know, I, I am somebody who will actively donate to charities and always support people who are doing things and not necessarily ever really get off my arse and do anything myself. Um, but I remember after this, it does leave you with thinking, um, "What you know, what can I do? What can I do to help people who won't, who won't have been as fortunate as I was? And so you start to start racking your brains and think, um, what can I do to raise some money, raise some awareness? The difficulty with, with that is you kind of want to try and not make it all about yourself. Because it's not like you want to stand out there and show off or make it about yourself and say, "Oh, look what's happened to me, everyone!" Um, you know, and so you're kind of battling that. <laughs> I was kind of battling that as I started to think about what I could do to raise some money for the stroke association, um, mainly for people who who won't have been as fortunate as I was, or perhaps people that I might have spent some time with when I was in when I was in hospital, and you, and you just think of those type of things. And that was kind of my focus. I kind of used that as a way to say, "Okay, well, let me be a bit more active." So if I thought if I could raise some if I could raise some money and put on an event where we played a game of football as stupid as that sounded, you know, if you just get people together, people will donate some money. So that was kind of a focus, I guess. once I was back on my feet, I could start looking at thinking, okay, you know through, through work, I have access to contacts at um, at Stoke Football Club. I was able to realise that I could hire the stadium for a, for a football match in the May. If we hire the pitch, we'll get a team of my friends from work and they'll play against a team of my friends from outside of work. So we asked everyone who was interested in playing to put some cash t- together so we could actually pay for the, for, the, for the event ourselves. And then we would ask those people to be sponsored and whoever sponsored them would qualify for a raffle ticket and we'd, we'd have a raffle on the evening as well. We were able to get through some contacts of friends and stuff. We were able to get some quite good prizes, whether that be tickets to the races or I think we had Shakiri's football boots, signed Shakiri football boots to obviously are now at Liverpool, but it was a Stoke player at the time. Uh, we had a signed Michael Owen England jersey um, and a few other different sporting pieces here and there. And so, yeah, that was kind of my focus. I then did the. The Stroke Association uh, resolution run at Trenton Gardens, and kind of used it as a as a stepping stone to you know to, to up your fitness ahead of playing on on the on the football pitch in in, in the May. And so I raised probably raised fifteen hundred quid or something for that run, which my sister, one of my sisters, and my mum also took part in, as well as a friend of mine, um, Tom from from just around the corner from where I live. So the four of us took part in that run. Trenton uh, and raised some money and then we ended up we're probably at around sort of the £5,000 mark at the moment you know once we once we've once we did the football match as well
2: he found that the football match gave him something to focus his efforts on a future goal that he could work towards
1: it was just kind of quite nice to just focus on something I kind of used it you know you've got something in your mind to focus on whether it's the run or, or whether it's the football match and the football match is mainly to say okay well let's try and get up to a a fairly decent standard of fitness, just so you can make the most of it. You I mean you don't want to? You don't want to <laughs> go in terms of? You know, we had access to the changing rooms. We had all the kits on. Our children came out with us at the start of the match. We, you know, we have a proper officials. The stadium's open, so all your family and friends are there. And you know, my dad's on the touchline as you know, like the manager and stuff for our team. And so you kind of want to make the most of it from a fitness point of view. So I use those as as kind of goals, focuses to 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 yeah, to I guess to aid with my recovery I'm being completely honest I didn't have I don't have much I haven't had much time to sit and think about it I'm 39 I have a very busy job which is kind of like an always-on type of job I you know three three young children they keep you busy enough for you not to to sit and dwell and think about stuff whether it's work or home life Um, and so I kind of just you just kind of crack on I think if was younger and didn't have children. Maybe it gives you a bit of time to sit and dwell on stuff a bit. Um, or if I was older and didn't have the the, the busyness of a family, you know, a young family in, in, in the house, you, it, I would imagine it, it, it would it, it, that would have its own challenges. I don't really look back, if I'm being honest. There's a lot of uncertainty around it. Obviously, I don't know what caused it. Um, sometimes, if you know, okay, maybe it's a lifestyle choice, and they, you know, someone can say well, it you caused because your blood pressure was high because you were stressed. Any of the tests that they did or any of the discussions I've had with doctors or specialists post-stress, no one has any answers. They don't know. So you kind of just carry on with your life, not really knowing what caused it. When I look back, I guess how I feel, I just feel like I've been lucky. It can happen to anyone at any time. And I I remember thinking that when I went for the first brain scan and my mum and my wife were in A&E with me, I remember saying to them, like, they're going to find something on this brain scan. You know, I, I knew by that point, it's difficult now because, you, you, you know, you're looking back and it all becomes a bit of a blur, but I remember at the time I knew that they were going to find that something had happened. It wasn't just going to be, OK, everything looks clear, and that was quite
2: strange, I guess. Although David had his friends and family around him and was contacted by the Stroke Association after he'd left hospital, he felt reluctant to seek out any further help or support.
1: When I first went to the hospital, the stroke, I think it was a... I, it was all a bit of a mad time. But I think someone from the Stroke Association came around and just made me aware that there was a support there should I need it. And when I was in the hospital, they said, there's a there's a very real chance, high chance, over the next 24 hours, you'll start to notice that your left side um, will stop functioning as normal. So when I was in the hospital bed, I remember just thinking the whole time I was just moving my arms and my legs just to see. And almost kind of tell myself like this isn't going to happen. Not that I know that's stupid because it's not. It's not. It wasn't in my hands. But I remember just thinking and and, and I kept doing it all the time just to sort of tell myself that I, everything's still okay. And then when I came out of the hospital, when anyone spoke about anything after, because I didn't have any physical damage or anything, I didn't. I, I just thought, well, I don't need any help, you know. I, this isn't help because I'm, I'm now unable to drive or I need some help because I can't dress myself or anything like that. So I kind of just thought I don't need any help and I didn't want to waste people's time.
2: Looking to the future, David wants to focus on raising more money for the Stroke Association and wants to maintain close relationships with his friends and loved ones.
1: However I go around doing it, little things, whatever, I will, I will continue to do something. We'll, we may well continue having um, an annual football match even if it's just getting people together, getting friends together, that was one of the key things as to why I wanted to do the football match. You know, as you, as you get older and, and you you get married and you see less of the friends you grew up with and all that type of stuff. Sometimes you just need to put something in the diary to force people to get together. And so, yeah, that's one of the things that I guess which has changed from the past. You know, post having the stroke, um, you don't take things, certain things for granted and and just try and it's so easy just to get I mean maybe this is just more about getting old but it's so easy to just not stay in contact with some of your friends because everyone starts having kids everyone lives away all my friends we all grew up in the same town but we all live all over the country now um, and so one of the key things about the about the, the football match was just to get people together
2: David was lucky to make a full and fairly speedy recovery and remains incredibly grateful for the strong support network that he has around him. Although he wanted to face the illness on his own terms, he still recognises that close connections with family and friends make all the difference when you're recovering from a stroke. If you're listening to this podcast and have had a stroke, or somebody close to you has and you'd like to learn more, search for The Stroke Association online. And for a dedicated NHS webpage, search for NHS Strokes. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening.
0: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ